Lord in heaven, you are so amazing, God, and we're just so grateful for the love, the mercy, and the kindness that you have showed to us. We pray this morning that your word would be clear, would speak clearly to our hearts, God, and that I would get out of the way and that people could hear directly from you through your Holy Spirit, God. We pray that this reality of being a family of faith is not something that's abstract, but is a deep, deep truth that permeates our lives and everything that we do. Thank you for your son Jesus and his deep love. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. For those of you who don't know me, my name is JT. Um, it's a pleasure to be preaching to you this morning. I'm not your usual speaker. If you're relatively new here, you may not know that. Uh, generally, Jeremy is the speaker. However, he's traveling on work, so you've gotten a series of Jeremy's friends, including myself. Uh, we're currently going through a series called Pillars and the Prophets, and this is something we do each and every year where we go through the four pillars of our church here, Risen Hope. Uh, last year, we spent some time in the parables unpacking why these are our pillars and what it means to have these pillars uh, for Risen Hope. And this year, we're going through the prophets, which is the last 17 books of the Old Testament. Two weeks ago, Jeremy talked to us about the first pillar, which is the centrality of Christ. Last week, Jacob spoke to us about the sufficiency of Scripture. Today, I'll be sharing with you about the family of faith. And then next week, Timothy. Uh, God willing, will be speaking to us about love where you live. So we're going to break down what it means to be a family of faith today. Why is this a pillar of risen hope and working through it? But I want to start off with a simple definition for you all, just something to keep in your mind as we go through this and work through the scripture today. And that's being a family of faith is that through faith in Jesus Christ, we are a family that will last forever. And our relationships are deeper and more meaningful than any relationship in this world. And if you've spent any time reading the prophets, you may you know, be familiar with the fact that the familial, the family language in the prophets is not always the most positive. Uh, when I think of the prophets, I think a lot about exile and adultery and unfaithfulness um, and broken promises, which are found all throughout those books. However, the cool thing is that if you dive a little bit deeper, you see many, many beautiful promises from God in the prophets, including promises directly relating to this family of faith um, that, that we are part of. So we're going to see this contrast today uh, as we read in the book of Hosea. So if you're able, uh, please open up to Hosea chapter 1. Starting with verse 2, it says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of the Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel, to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow, or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. 
So we've seen a lot of bad things happen here so far. First, just even in Hosea's life with what God asked him to do, and then the imagery that God is using through Hosea's life to, make, to tell Israel what, what is going to happen to them and what has happened to them. However, things turn in the next verse. It starts off with, oh, out of order. It starts off with the word yet. Despite everything that God just said, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Amen. So to recap this story again, God spoke to Hosea, and I mentioned there are 17 prophets at the end of the Old Testament, and many of those prophets are kind of court prophets, where they'll sit down, they'll receive God's word, they'll transcribe it onto scrolls, or they'll speak to someone else. Hosea was a little unique. He was similar to Jeremiah or Ezekiel, where God said, I don't want you to just do that. I want you to show the people of Israel my word through your life. And so God asked Hosea to do a pretty tough thing. He said, I want you to go and marry this woman, Gomer, who comes from a lineage of unfaithfulness, who you know will be unfaithful, and I want you to marry her and be faithful to her and love her and love her deeply and keep your marriage promise. And that's something that's, that's hard for me to even wrap my head around. But God asked Hosea to do this because the way that Israel had been unfaithful to him was even more hurtful and even more deeply unfaithful than the way Gomer was to Hosea. In Hosea, or in, uh, in Hosea chapter 3, we, uh, Hosea gives a brief first-person account of the same story. And in it, God says to him, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. So you see Israel was saying, You know what? I'm not going to worship you, creator of all things. I'm going to go find my joy, my peace, my contentment. I'm going to go serve and worship other gods or other Baals, as they're called throughout the prophets. And this is what... Gomer was doing to Hosea. And then Hosea and Gomer had three children together. The first child was a boy, the oldest Jezreel, which is the name of a city named after um, King Jehu, a former king of Israel. And the reason he's named Jezreel, because Jezreel was raised and burned. And so this is um, a warning to Israel that they'll be defeated by their enemies because of their treachery. The second child was, named, was, a, was a daughter named Lo-Ruhamah, which means no mercy because God is no longer going to have mercy on Israel. And the third child was a son named Lo-Am-I, which means not my people, with God telling Israel, you are no longer my people. And we see, again, Hosea keeps his marriage promise to Gomer. And later on in Hosea, you read that he goes and buys Gomer back at a great cost. So not only was Gomer the wife of a prophet, and she was unfaithful to him, but she actually put herself in a situation where she became a slave to another man. So Hosea, to keep his marriage promise, to, you know, rightfully something that God had made his own, his wife, he had to go and purchase her back because she was the property of another man, which just shows how far she had fallen. And despite how far she fell, that's how much further can you imagine the children of Israel had fallen compared to um, God's love and, how, and the promises that he'd, he'd made to them. But as we'll see, God keeps his promise to Israel and he brings them back into the fold. So for today, we're going to spend time focusing on Hosea chapter 2, verse 1. And we're going to work through that verse, and we're going to uh, understand 
what this means for us as a family of faith. And for this verse, I actually want to show it in three different translations up here on the screen because our, our English language can't fully capture the Hebrew at all times. And there's this word, the last word of this verse is ruhama, like that daughter lo ruhama. And uh, you can see in the ESV, it says, say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. But the CSB, another translation I enjoy, says, call your brothers my people and your sisters compassion. And then the NIV says, say of your brothers my people and of your sisters my loved one. So you can see that last word we can't fully encapsulate its meaning just in English with one word. It's a word that means compassion, mercy, and deep love for one another. That's what Ruhama means. And this is what God is going to show to his people. So from this verse, there are three truths about our family of faith that we're going to walk through today. The first truth is that we are God's chosen people. And as Hosea 1.10 tells us, that means that we are his children, children of the living God. Second truth is that we are all brothers and sisters. We are part of this family of faith together. And the third truth is that mercy, compassion, and deep love for each other and for our Father in heaven are the result of being part of this family of faith. So jumping into the first truth, we are God's chosen people and his children. You see here in Hosea 2.1, it says, Say to your brothers, you are my people. So there are many questions you can ask when reading scripture, but there's three simple ones I want to ask about this today. Why does God make us his people? Who does God choose to become his people? And how does God bring us into his family? So why, who, and how? Starting with why, you know, God is, God is, God is sufficient. It's end of, end of sentence. So there's no need for him to do anything else. But he decided in his infinite wisdom that he wanted to bring us into his family. Why would he do this? What's the purpose of all this? Paul unpacks some of this for us in Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So why did he do this? Paul makes this clear in verses 5 and 6. We were made his children because of the purpose of his will, which is the praise of his glorious grace. Put simply, we were brought into the fold. We were made his sons and daughters so that we could live lives that would glorify him and bring glory to him here on this earth. So the question, second question is who? Who is part of this family? Who does God choose to become his people? In Galatians 4, we see Paul addressing some Jews who were trying to convince some new believers that in order to be righteous, they must follow all of the law. Starting in verse 3 of Galatians 4, Paul writes, In the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So we see here that those who were under the law would be redeemed and adopted as sons. So the Jews, the very people who were under the law, those who God was chastising for their disobedience and saying, you would not be my people, but then eventually would be called children of the living God they would ultimately be considered God's children through Jesus Christ. However, there's 
a group of people who aren't Jews, and I certainly fall into this category. I'm a Gentile or a Greek or a barbarian, as you see us called throughout the New Testament. What about us? Well, we're going to go to Ephesians again, this time chapter 2, starting with verse 11. Paul writes, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And jumping ahead shortly to the verse 17, it says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So those who were not under the law, those who were not Jews, were alienated from Israel, completely separated from Israel, and strangers to these covenants of promises. So if you were born Jewish, you had an innate access to God's promises through the law. It was something you were born into. But that is not something you had if you, were, if you were not born into that. However, through Christ Jesus, both the Jews and the Gentiles, whether you were born into those covenants of promises, you have access to this family of faith because of Christ Jesus. There is a new covenant now, and Jesus has come and fulfilled that. So the last question was how, and we've sort of answered this already. But Paul writes in Romans, Romans 3, he makes it very clear how we enter into this family of faith. Uh, and it's a wonderful chapter. We don't have time to read all of it. So we're just going to read verse 9 and the verses 21 and through 24, where Paul is writing to both Jews, about both Jews and Gentiles here. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, that is the Old Testament, the Torah and the 17 books of the prophets, bear witness to it, to him, the righteousness of God. Through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe, there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we're brought into this family by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter your lineage, your background, your ancestors, your history at all. There is a single one path into this household, and it is to be, to be his people and his called his children, and that path is through Christ Jesus. So this brings us to our second big truth from this text here. So again, we see in Hosea 2.1 that we are all a family of faith. It says, say to your brothers and to your sisters. This is family language. It didn't need to say brothers and sisters. It could have said, say to the Israelites, say to the people around you, say to your neighbors, say to your actual brothers and sisters in the world. But this is saying, say to your brothers and sisters, speaking of all of those who are part of this family in faith and belief. And once again, you know, God didn't need to do this. You know, God is, God is sufficient. He didn't need relationships for him to be glorified. But in his infinite wisdom, he decided that the best way for his plan to be carried out and for him to be glorified was for us to be in relationship. You, risen hope, you are not ships passing in the night. You are not people who just happen to be co-located or proximate to each other, who just happen to be going to church together. You're not acquaintances or just merely kind of good friends. 
You are a family of faith, brothers and sisters, with a bond and a connection that is deeper and stronger than any connection in the world. And that's kind of a strong statement I just made, and so I want to take a brief aside to show you why it is actually true, why this bond is so strong, and it absolutely is the strongest thing in the world. You may remember that the first sermon series here at Risen Hope was through the book of Colossians. And in Colossians 1, Jeremy spent some time taking us through a series of scriptures called the Christ Hymn. I'm going to read a short excerpt from that, starting in Colossians 1, verse 16. For by him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible and visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So we see, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. So the most powerful force and being in the universe, the means by which all things were created, they were created for him, through him, and by him, that is what has brought us into this family of faith, and that is what holds all things together and is the head of this body. So when I say that it's the strongest force in the universe connecting us as brothers and sisters in Christ, it's not hyperbole, and praise God for that. In Ephesians 4, Paul writes, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. So these people here, man, woman, or child next to you, whether it's Tom Luce or Kaylee Mitchell or Liam Patinode, you are all have been made and God is making you one in body and one in spirit. There's a, I have to must admit, there's a depth to this concept that is difficult for my human brain to understand. Uh, and, and maybe these people simply just feel like someone who happens to be sitting next to you or is kind of, again, proximate to you in life. But it is so much more special than that. It's so much more meaningful. And if you'll, um, excuse me, I want to tell a short story from my life that I hope helps to illustrate how deep and meaningful this connection is. Some of you may know that I grew up with three younger brothers. I was the oldest of four boys and the um, primary problem causer in the household. However, I actually had an older sister, Katie, who's 13 years older than me, and I did not grow up with her. Uh, She was from my dad's prior marriage, and when she was three years old, Uh, she was in the grocery store with my grandpa. So my dad and his wife had been divorced, and my grandpa was pushing her around in the grocery cart. And as he was shopping, um, some men came up and knocked my grandpa over and stole Katie and took her away. And they gave her to Katie's mom, and Katie's mom took Katie to Sweden, and they moved there. And so Katie, um, from the ages of 3 to 13, never saw my dad. Um, She actually didn't see him until I was born when Katie was 13 years old. She came back, and she held me as a baby, and then went back and continued to live in Sweden. And I saw Katie a few times over the course of the next 20 years or so. Mainly it was around when my dad was sick or when he passed away when I was 20. But it was nice seeing her, but there was never that deep of a connection. It was just, oh yeah, she's my sister, but it was easily easy to forget about her. However, three and a half years ago, she and her family, her husband and her two children, came on a trip around the United States for three weeks. And they spent three nights in our home. And um, something changed. 
I, there was a hole in my heart that I didn't know was there, and it was filled by my, by my sister. Um, and I know she felt the same way. She never had a brother growing up, and now she had a brother. And we were able to connect with one another. And I know I grew up with three younger brothers, and they, we, I have a special connection with them. But there was a type of connection I had with Katie that is in some ways deeper and more meaningful than I had with the brothers I grew up with. And it's kind of hard to describe. And despite the fact that there were eight of us in our relatively small home, um, it was a time of joy and peace, and it wasn't a burden at all, and it was amazing. And I, you know, as you can tell, it's hard for me to talk about without getting uh, uh, emotional about it. And by God's grace, I've been able to see her twice in the years since then. However, as special as that is, and as, as, as much as I love Katie and as amazing as that is, my relationship with her pales in comparison. It's nothing, nothing at all to the relationship that I have with each and every one of you and you have with each other. The most meaningful, special relationship with anybody on this earth, whether it's through flesh and blood or common interests or location, pales in comparison to the relationship that we have with one another because it is Jesus Christ that brought us together into this family of faith. And so just how much more precious is this right here what we have than anything else in the world? So what does this mean practically for us? That brings us to our final truth. That the practical reality of being a family of faith is that we show the same deep mercy, compassion, and love for one another that God has showed to us. And you see there again, in Hosea 2.1, it says, you have received mercy. Say to your sisters, compassion, and say to your sisters, my loved one. So what's this look like? How, does this, how do we practically live this out? In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes, he tells us, to therefore be imitators of God, starting in verse 1, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Paul tells us to be imitators of God as his beloved children. Just like any children want to be imitators of their father, we're living in the same household as our father in heaven, and we're called to be imitators of him. And this is a huge calling, and it might be kind of an abstract calling that's harder to understand, but luckily, in God's grace, Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to explain more. Continuing in verse 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. There is so much there, and we're not going to try to unpack all that today. Uh, we're told to, but we are told to be imitators of God, both by things we do and by things that we abstain from. So up front, we see there's a few things we're told to do. We're told to walk in love, and we're told to give up our lives for one another as Christ did for us. And anytime I see that language in the New Testament, I can't help but think of John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, where Jesus is talking to his disciples. And you may recall that previous to this, a few chapters earlier, he uh, tells, he says, hey, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. 
and the second is just like it, to love your neighbor and your, as yourself. On this depends all the law and the prophets. But you see Jesus is going above and beyond here. He says to his disciples, I've given you those two greatest commandments, which wrap up the whole Old Testament and, and the Ten Commandments, but a new commandment I give you, above and beyond that, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so you can see from this that there's three relationships here that are important in, the, in our lives as brothers and sisters of Christ. There's our vertical relationship with our Father in heaven. There's our horizontal relationship that we have with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then there's an outward relationship with those in the world who see the way we love each other and know we are disciples because of that. Paul then goes on to talk about some things we don't do. And I could go on much longer, but I'm just going to focus on, on two things here. So it's kind of a sampling. One, Paul writes that we should have no sexual immorality, impurity, or covetousness amongst the saints. And you get, when you get down to the root of this, this is really about striving for something that's not yours, coveting something else, being selfish, trying to fulfill your needs and desires over the needs and desires of others. You're not finding contentment, joy, and peace with what God has given you, with the station he has put you at in life, but you're instead trying to find it by getting something that's not yours, whether that belongs to someone else or whether it's you know, kind of an internal sin. But either way, having this selfishness and this covetousness, this idol-making, um, harms that vertical, horizontal, or outward relationship, or multiple of them. So some examples of what this might look like. So with sexual immorality, you have pornography, fantasies, fantasizing about others, and adultery. All three of those are about seeking an intimate relationship that is outside the bounds of what God has given you in your life, and you're seeking to fill some intimacy that is not what God has for you. You're doing something that's selfish or coveting something else. You're making sort of an idol out of the situation as opposed to finding joy and peace in what God has given you. There's also kind of the obvious possessions. Don't covet what someone else owns. They might have a really awesome, nice big yard, and you might have great plans for your yard, but you don't make an idol out of that and you don't covet it. it doesn't, you don't let it impact your relationship with them or perhaps a car or a job or a situation that you wish for. And you find that while these things might start off simple enough, like, oh, I really wish I had that thing because it'd be really cool if I did, those things often morph into like a bitter root and it causes you not to love your brothers and sisters in Christ the way God has called you to. Because the way we're called to love each other is to rejoice when we rejoice and mourn when we mourn, not rejoice when they mourn and mourn when they rejoice. And Jeremy and I were talking about this and he brought up a cool point. As a family of faith, why would we even strive to gratify ourselves? What's the point in doing this? Because this is the one set of relationships in the entire world where there's no need for us to strive to gratify ourselves because we are literally called to meet each other's needs. We are, we are gratifying each other and fulfilling each other's needs as part of this relationship. So there's no need for us to strive after this ourselves. And that's a really cool thing. And there's no other sets of relationships in the world where that is actually true. Another thing Paul tells us to do is to have no filthiness, foolish talk, or crude joking. And I have to admit that I understand the appeal of this, and I have a long history of this. Growing up in locker rooms and not always, you know, showing the fruit of being a Christian or something that was endemic in my life for much of my life. But we are instead to build up and edify each other. When you use filthiness, foolish talk, or crude joking, in my life, I've often found it like sometimes the funniest things I could say fall into that category, or the things that make me feel witty or better about myself, or something that might even put somebody down or make it seem like you know what's going on or you're edgy. But that's not what this is about. This is about, you know, our, we were called into this family of faith for the single purpose of glorifying our Father in heaven. 
And we can do that by building each other up and edifying each other, not by doing things that push people away. However, to contrast that, also to be clear, we're not called to be holier-than-thou, prudish, judgmental people, because that also pushes people away. That doesn't glorify God and bring them, bring them closer to Christ. This is really about being lovers of what is good. I think of Titus 1, where Paul lays out the qualifications for being an elder, and he says that men who are called to be elders must be lovers of what is good. They have renewed minds, renewed hearts. They're transformed from the inside out. There is a desire in them to always be doing things that glorify and please God, that point people to God. This is really about, again, pointing people to God, bringing people to Christ. And as we see all throughout the scripture, we don't want to cause others to stumble or sin by what we say. So instead of those negative things, Paul says that we should walk as children of the light, discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. So what does it mean to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, to walk as children of the light? The cool thing is now in 2019, I think God's made that exceptionally easy for us to do and figure out. You can read your Bible 24-7, and just I encourage you to spend time in the Word. We spend a lot of time in Ephesians today. If you don't know where to start, maybe open up to Ephesians 1, and just twice a day, morning and night, read Ephesians 1. Do it for a whole week. You don't need to. It's, this is not a book to be completed. This is, a, this is God's truth to be enjoyed and soaked in and let it just penetrate your heart. Uh, I like something I like doing is on Spotify, there's an artist called Streetlights Bible, where they read the Bible with a little bit of music in the background. Like, turn that on when you take a shower or when you're driving in the car, or when you brush your teeth, and just let that same book soak into you. It's amazing how hearing and reading and going multiple times, you can really experience God's truth and understand what it means to walk as children of the light. And pray. God has given us an open line of communication to him 24-7. And it's a two-way communication. We can cast our burdens on him, and he gives us discernment and comfort and helps us know what to do in our lives and what this means to walk as children of light. And then take those truths and your victories and your prayers and share them with your brothers and sisters. This is not meant to be done in isolation. This is something we do as a community, as a family of faith. Just tell them, like, I am struggling with this, or I am really enjoying this, or God has really spoke to me this way. Go and share that with your brothers and sisters. You know, we could also do what Paul writes and tells us to do, starting in Ephesians 5 at the end of verse 18. He says, To be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Music is a universal language. Every culture on this earth understands the appeal of rhythm and melody and harmony. We all do. And Paul and God, really ultimately, because Paul can only understand this through him, understands that to be true as well. So instead of doing those things, what are things you can do? You can sing songs of praise. Maybe for, that, for you, that means sitting in your car and singing some contemporary Christian music like Chris Tomlin. Hallelujah, do that. Or maybe that means listening to Christian hip-hop like Beautiful Eulogy or KB. Or maybe you're more into kind of the hardcore Christian rock like Wolves at the Gate. You can do that too. All of those things are edifying and glorifying and wonderful things to God. And you can do that on your own or with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Or you can get together. I know there's a few people here who absolutely love music. Todd Shaw will jump the moment you say, will you, will you sing worship songs with me? So anytime you need, Todd Shaw will be there for you to do that. Also, you might be like me and you might love music, but you might be pretty bad at it. But it talks here about making melody to the Lord with your heart. 
You can write down the things that God has done for you. You can write down and share the song of your heart about the victories that God has given you and how he's delivered you over and over and over again. Don't be afraid to write it down, type it up, remember what God has done for you, return back to it, and share that with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because that, you know, as we see there in Hosea 2.1, it says, tell your brothers and tell your sisters. We are to remind each other all the time how we are part of this family of faith and what God has done for us. Just always be giving thanks. Doing these things is just living life with a posture of gratitude, which is very pleasing to the Lord. And lastly, something we can do is just even the simple act of living out a life that is loving and righteous. I'm sure some of you have experienced this, but I know that many times I found myself observing or maybe thinking back and pondering on some actions taken by a brother or sister in Christ and just how encouraging and joyous it was for me to observe them. Perhaps it's an older lady who just lives her life with a kind of special, uncommon grace. The way she treats people and the way she behaves is different than what you expect. And you know that that grace is only of God. I think of my grandmother. My grandma Esther is 100 years old, and in one month she's turning 101. And she is someone, when I think of this, as someone who just my entire life, my 33 years here on this earth, I've always thought of her as someone who lives her life with just exceeding grace that is only of God. And I was talking to my mom, and she told me that she and her siblings asked my grandma, say, in the 100 years you've been here, what's the biggest change you've seen in the world? So from 1918 to now, what's the biggest change? And you would probably expect something around computers, technology, or the way the, the, the politics or the things in the world have changed. Uh, no, no. She said the biggest transformation, the biggest single change she saw in her life was the gospel coming into her life and the way it changed it. Or contrasting that, you know, maybe it's observing the sweet nature of a child. You, there are lots of children here at Risen Hope, and we've seen the childlike, sweet, obedient, submissive, trusting nature of children. Jesus tells us that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is those of you who are the most childlike, those of you who are the most humble. And that, just seeing that behavior and the way those sweet children behave also points people to Christ and helps build us up as a body. Or thirdly, it could be the radical generosity of a brother and sister in Christ who are giving sacrificially, laying down their lives in the way that Jesus said to do, but they're doing so joyfully. They're saying, I see a need over here, and I'm going to fill it. And that's something we can do as well. All this sounds glorious, at least I think so. But I have to admit that this could feel overwhelming to you. I went through a whole bunch of lists of do's and don'ts and things that said to be imitators of our Father in heaven, which is kind of a, a big calling. I want to encourage you that it's not for you to do or for you to achieve. This is the outcome of genuine faith. Because our Father, by his Son and through his Spirit, can, will, and does heal you and bring all of this to fruition. This is not about you. And how do I know this? Because he's not telling us to do anything that he hasn't already done. This deep mercy, compassion, and love that he has shown to us, he has given us his spirit. He is part of us, and he's saying, because I'm in you and because I've shown this to you, you can and will show it to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And he delights in us doing this. He loves seeing this happen. And so strive for this, pray for this, turn to God and ask for it, and he will answer your prayers. Be encouraged that you've been adopted into his family, not by your own merit, but instead by his wondrous grace. So in just a few moments, we're going to commemorate our adoption into this family by taking communion. If you believe that through Jesus' blood, you have been cleansed of your sins, you are part of this family, and we invite you to take communion with us, remembering Jesus' perfect life and sacrifice through the bread and the grape juice. 
I'm going to leave you with two verses from 1 Peter 2. It's verses 9 and 10, where Peter is actually calling back to Hosea here explicitly as he writes to these um, early first century believers, or late first century, sorry. Peter writes, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. Let us pray. God in heaven, you are the most glorious thing in all of creation. And you love us so deeply and so much that it's hard for us to even understand. You love us so much that you've made the greatest sacrifice ever by sending your son Jesus down here to die for us. And because of that, we have the amazing eternal and everlasting privilege of being a family of faith. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are more deeply connected than any other relationship on this world, God. And I pray for risen hope. I pray for the brothers and sisters here. I pray for the brothers and sisters in Kingsgate and Seattle and beyond that we would understand the deep, precious, and amazing reality of what it means that we are called into a single family. God, we pray that you would help us show mercy, compassion, and love to one another, that we would be laying down our lives for one another, God, and that we wouldn't be trying to do this via our effort, but instead we would be turning to you knowing that you give us the strength, you give us the energy, and you give us the wisdom and discernment to do this, to walk as children of light. Lord, you are amazing. We thank you so much, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name.